I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we dig beneath the surface of Scripture to understand the spirit that the words represent. Exodus is a book of revelation. One might call it an apocalypse in the truest sense of the word. In fact, our word apocalypse is a word that's derived from the Greek word apocalypsis, and it has the meaning of uncovering, disclosure, or revelation. It's only our modern English that's transformed this word to mean something of great destruction or the end of the world. So when we come to the book of Exodus, we want to view it as a narrative, as a story of events that occurred in history. But as we read the book, we recognize that the story is only half of the content of the book of Exodus. Exodus is, in reality, a revelation of Hashem to mankind, who he is, what he does, what he has done. It tells us of his reputation, his character, authority, and our role in light of this. Now, if you remember back to the early lessons of Exodus several months back, I talked about how the Hebrew name of the book is Shemot, or Names. And then we spoke of how the word name in Hebrew includes ideas that are far beyond the simple sounds that pass our lips as we speak to or about another. Name is more than a simple identifier. In the Hebrew, a name is everything that is unique and identifiable about any entity. So it is when we get to places such as Exodus 13, 1-20, which is the text of this Parsha. And we consider these verses in light of the narrative we end up completely confused as to the intent of the author in including this information in the midst of the climax of the escape narrative. If Exodus is a narrative and the Exodus is the focus of this narrative, then these verses are very confusing and misplaced. They're especially repetitive and oh so easy to skip over them and not pay too much attention to what this section says in order to continue on in the story. If we break it down, these first 20 verses of chapter 13 have really only two things to talk about. Verse 1 through 2, sanctify your children, a command. Verse 3 through 10, celebrate the feast of matzah. Verse 11 through 17, sanctify and redeem your firstborn, the initial how to do that, with more instruction on just how to fulfill this being given later in the Torah. And then verses 18 through 20, Israel did some things and they began their journey. And that's it. What could we possibly learn from these verses? What would Israel have taken from these verses as they were escaping the clutches of an oppressive slave master system? Now, I know that I've spent the majority of my time studying this passage asking the same question. What could this possibly reveal? If we look to Exodus as a revelation from God of who God is, then there should be something of a revelation of God and our relationship to him in this text. But what is it? How do we tease it out? 
And so it is that we must once again don our detective hats and pick up our magnifying glasses and dig into the text and consider it in light of everything that's occurring around it and everything that's occurring in the context, especially in the context that's not specifically stated. How is it that the festival of matzah and the sanctifying of the firstborn are related, and what can they teach us about God and the process of redemption? Well, first let's read the text and then discuss this in much greater detail. Exodus 13, 1-20 And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Set apart to me all the firstborn, the one opening the womb among the children of Israel, among man and among beast, it is mine. And Moshe said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Mitzrayim, out of the house of slavery. For by strength of hand Hashem brought you out of this place, and whatever is leavened shall not be eaten. Today you are going out in the new moon, Aviv. And it shall be when Hashem brings you into the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Chivites, and the Yevusites, which He swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this new moon. Seven days you eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day is a festival to Hashem. Unleavened bread is to be eaten the seven days, and whatever is leavened is not to be seen with you, and leaven is not to be seen with you within all your border. And you shall inform your son in that day, saying, It is because of what Hashem did for me when I came up from Mitzrayim. And it shall be as a sign to you on your hand, and as a reminder between your eyes, that the Torah of Hashem is to be in your mouth, for with a strong hand Hashem has brought you out of Mitzrayim. And you shall guard this law at its appointed time from year to year. And it shall be when Hashem brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall give over to Hashem, everyone opening the womb, and every firstborn that comes from your livestock, the males belonging to Hashem. And every firstborn of a donkey you are to ransom with a lamb. And if you do not ransom it, then you shall break its neck, and every firstborn of man among your sons you are to ransom. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, By strength of hand, Hashem brought us out of Mitzrayim, out of the house of bondage. And it came to be when Pharaoh was too hardened to let us go, that Hashem killed every firstborn in the land of Mitzrayim, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I am slaughtering to Hashem every male that opens the womb, but every firstborn of my sons I ransom. And it shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand Hashem brought us out of Mitzrayim. And it came to be when Pharaoh had let the people go, that Elohim did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though that was nearer. For Elohim said, lest the people regret when they see fighting and return to Mitzrayim. So Elohim led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Sea of Reeds, and the children of Israel went up in fives from the land of Mitzrayim. And Moshe took the bones of Yosef with him. For he certainly made the children of Israel swear, saying, Elohim shall certainly visit you, and you shall bring my bones from here with you. And they departed from Sukkot and camped at Atam at the edge of the wilderness. Matzah and the redemption of the firstborn. How do they connect? Well, our first question should be, what makes me think that they need to connect? Well, in the small section of scripture, we're given two commands and they mirror each other. In verse 8 and verse 14, we are given instructions for what to say when we instruct our children as to the reason for these commands. Verse 8 says that we are to initiate the lesson with our children and tell them why we keep the festival of matzah. Verse 14 tells us how to answer our children when they ask why we're sanctifying our firstborn, because they will ask why all of the firstborn are to be sanctified. 
Then in the next verse, in both cases, we read in verse 9 and in verse 16 that we are to bind these commands for a sign on our hand, and they are to be as frontlets between our eyes. Now, each of these commands is the very last thing said about the commands for matzah and the firstborn. So as it's going through the text, it gives us all these instructions, and then it says, bind as signs on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. Now, there are no other commands with this language until we get to the book of Deuteronomy. And when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, we will find this exact same language contained in the Shema of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. These are the only two commands that occupy the space between the Passover and then the continued travels of Israel in the wilderness as they make their way to Sinai. Add to this that both of these commands we read in verse 5 and verse 11 are commands that are to be kept in their fullness only once Israel enters the land of Canaan. If these things can only be kept fully once in Canaan, why list them here? What is it that connects these ideas to this narrative right now in the text? What makes these two commands the only ones in the entire book of Exodus that were to be a sign on the hand and as frontlets between the eyes? What is it about these commands that they need to be given here in the flow of the text, but then not kept until they're in the land? Is there anything of these commands beyond the simple fact of Passover? Is Passover the vertex that these two tangents find their intersection and what they revolve around? And the easy answer is yes. Yes, these two items do find a common thread in their connection to the Passover. Because matzah is what occurs after Passover, and the Passover was the destruction of the firstborn, God taking the firstborn. But could there possibly be more to this? We'll come back to that in just a moment. Before then, I want to point out something that caught my attention early on as I was studying specifically this section on matzah. One of the things that stuck out in my mind as I went through these verses on matzah is the connection to the affliction that Israel had just been released from. In verse 3, we read that Hashem is delivering Israel from the house of slavery. And the word used here is avodim, and the root of this word is avad. And then at the end of verse 5, we read that Israel is to keep this service in this particular month. But the word translated as service is connected to the word used in verse 3. The word in verse 3 being the one who is a slave, and the word in verse 5 being the work that's done by a slave. Add to this that matzah is referred to as the bread of affliction in Deuteronomy 16.3. This is the same word, anad, that's used to describe the affliction of Israel in Exodus 3.7, 17, and 4.31. So if we follow this line of thought, God has just delivered Israel from slavery to Egypt. He's given them their freedom and escape, and yet now he's telling them about the service that they will accomplish for him and the affliction that he is going to expect of them. We touched on this last week some, in the recognition that all men must serve someone. But I believe this idea is being further expanded here. It seems as if Israel is being reminded that they've been released from slavery, but that they're not being given the opportunity to do just whatever they want. The freedom that they're being given is a freedom from the oppression of the nations. They're still bound in service, but now it's service to a new master. They will still face an affliction of sorts, but it's a new affliction. It will be an affliction of the stomachs and an affliction of comfort, but not an affliction of labor that leads to death. 
Now this idea is important because it reveals that the process of drawing close to God that begins at redemption and the freedom that's achieved from this is not a freedom of anarchy. It's not one that allows us to simply act in whatever way we like. And we read this truth in other places in the Torah, such as Deuteronomy 12.8. Do not do as we're doing here today, each one doing whatever is right in his own eyes. And then later, in Judges 17.6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The freedom that is achieved here is a freedom found in service to a true and kind master. A master that understands what is best and who is kind and full of love. A master who's not going to withhold affliction, but who is going to use affliction judiciously to correct and not foolishly to harm for the sole purpose of harm. Not exercising power for the sake of its simple exercise. In contrast, what we're told to do is to do what's right and good in the eyes of God. In Deuteronomy 6.18, And you shall do what is right and good in the eyes of Hashem, that it might be well with you, and that you might go in and possess the good land which Hashem swore to your fathers. Deuteronomy 12.28, Guard and obey all these words which I command you, that it might be well with you and your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the eyes of Hashem your God. Rather than doing what's right in our own eyes, the freedom that's given through redemption is a freedom found in doing what is right in the eyes of Hashem. Now this is truly profound and extremely important. And I put this little aside here because it will become important later. This idea is central to the ideas that do connect these two primary parts of this text. So returning to our examination of the connection that is derived from these two seemingly otherwise unrelated commands, in order to pierce the mystery, we have to remember where we are in the text. So we've just finished Exodus 12, the chapter that reveals the central idea of redemption. The chapter that saw the final release and fulfillment of a time that had been promised for centuries. The chapter that demonstrates who is in and who is not covered when it comes to judgment. And the very end of chapter 12 gave a description of who is and who is not to be included in the community in future generations. As we attempt to discern the connection between the festival of matzah and the consecration of the firstborn, we must have this foundation in our minds. Up to this point, Exodus has been revealing for us, in various ways, God's general qualities. The way that he acts in relationship to the entire world in the beginning and in the last chapter, we have discovered how to be on the mercy side of those qualities. And as we proceed through the remainder of Exodus, we'll discover that it was at this point, the point of Exodus 12, that the revelation of God shifts from his qualities and character that affect the entire world to the relationship of Hashem with his people. Nearly everything that we will read from here on out will be a revelation of Hashem for those of us who have joined ourselves to Israel. Most of all, chapter 12 is a chapter of transition. It's a shift from the realm of slavery and oppression to a realm of release and freedom. It's a change of masters in the lives of the children of Israel. And it's in this that we begin to catch the first glimpse of how these ideas of matzah and redemption of the firstborn are connected. Here, at the very beginning of the relationship of God and his people, a baseline needs to be set. The very first commands of how to be in relationship with the God of Israel. 
So first let's examine the festival of matzah and what it represents in our relationship with Hashem. Now, I'm going to continue under the assumption that many of you are at least familiar with the festival of unleavened bread or matzah. If not, I highly recommend you do some study on it and what all it represents. Perhaps the next time that the season comes around, I will release a special on this topic in just a few months. Until then, here is a very light overview of this festival. For seven days, we don't eat anything with yeast or chametz in it. That's it. Now, there is more to it than that, but that's for another teaching. So let's do something that's super easy for us to do, and let's look to the Renewed Covenant, or the New Testament, to discover what the symbol of leaven represents in the mind of the Messiah and the Apostles. So Yeshua uses the idea of leaven in several places, and in nearly all of them, it's connected to a specific thing. Matthew 16, 11-12 says, How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Luke 12.1 Meanwhile, when an innumerable crowd of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Yeshua usually connects leaven to hypocrisy or false teaching that is, seems to be biblically based. In another place, Paul also uses the symbol of leaven as he connects leaven to the concept of sin. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8, says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the entire lump? Therefore, cleanse out the old leaven, so that you are a new lump, as you are unleavened. For also Messiah, our Pesach, was sacrificed for us. So then let us celebrate the festival of Pesach, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of evil and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so from these examples, we see in hindsight that there is a connection to be made between leaven and sin, and unleavened bread is connected to sincerity and truth. But that's not all that there is that is connected to leaven. In one other place, Yeshua speaks of leaven in a completely different way. And the way that he speaks of leaven in this one other place is not the same metaphor at all, so we need to be very careful that we don't mix up this other place with these commands that he's given here. This other place is a completely different take on leaven than we see represented in these other passages. But the other way, it's not really part of this lesson. It's connected more to Shavuot, the feast that follows after Matzah, than anything else. It's the central parable of the seven that are recorded in Matthew 13. And in this, Yeshua likens the kingdom of God to leaven that is put into dough and leavens the entire loaf. And Shavuot itself is a celebration of the Holy Spirit, the foundation of the kingdom of God. And it is the only time that leavened bread was offered as part of the worship ceremony in the tabernacle in the temple. But that's for another day. So in each of those other instances that I just spoke on, leaven is a symbol that represents hypocrisy and sin. And when you are redeemed, you are to leave sin and hypocrisy behind. Now, it's simple enough for us, but perhaps not so intuitive to those who are new to the faith. It, it does need to be said, accept the blood of the lamb on your doorpost and sin no more, something that Yeshua repeats over and over. But this is something that needs to be highlighted in the process of redemption and coming into the community of Israel. Simply saying a prayer and believing the right thing, it's not enough. 
Sin must be actively left behind. You must escape the sin that besets you and has kept you captive. Now, this is all great, and it needs to be said and examined and understood, but this particular expression of matzah is perhaps best understood through a practical application of the feast. There are plenty of other teachers currently out there who expound upon those ideas that I just talked about, leaven being sin and leaving it all behind. Um, so I'm going to leave that to them, because they, frankly, they do a great job on it. But I wanted to look more at the practical application of it, because it it teaches us the same thing through a very tangible, understandable way. There is revealed in the Festival of Matzah an action that's taken that goes way deeper than simply don't sin and don't be a hypocrite. So who listening to this now has ever made sourdough bread? Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have packets of yeast to add to dough. A lump of dough would have to be left out to absorb yeast that occurs naturally in the air. Now, the first thing that would be necessary would be to make the lump of dough and allow it to sit. At first, it would have to sit for a minimum of seven days to begin to ferment and to gather enough yeast from the environment to begin to rise. During this time, the dough would have to be kept moist and it would have to be fed with increased amounts of flour each day. And during this time, while the new starter was created, the only bread that would be available for eating would be unleavened. Once the starter was ready, however, they would take the leavened dough and they would mix it in with another lump that didn't have leaven in it. And this would allow the leaven to spread. And within a day or so, the new dough would be ready to bake. Before they could bake it though, they would need to take a bit of the dough that was part of that and set it aside to be added to the next bit of dough so that the leavening process in the new lump could then be cooked later. And this would continue from loaf to loaf. Before the loaf would be put into the oven, a chunk of it would be taken off to be the starter for the next loaf. This was a continual process, and it's something that actually took some time to do. And so in a very real practical way, the command to eat unleavened bread and to get rid of all the leaven in all communities created a very real break from the old and a new beginning of the cycle of bread. Every year, the starter would have to be tossed out of every home, every business, and after matzah, the process would then begin over again. This is a time-consuming process to go through every year, but it would ensure that there would be no part of the bread that you're breaking that's over a year old. If you've ever used sourdough starter from another place, whether you bought it online from somebody or gotten it from a friend, there's a big chance that some of the dough contained in the starter is as old as the starter itself. And there are those who have starter that's been kept going for generations. But the fact is, as parts are taken from a leavened loaf and then mixed into a new loaf over and over and over again, there will always be some little bit of the original loaf that will carry over into the new. And if we consider this process in connection to teaching and hypocrisy of the Pharisees, then we can see that matzah is a time to reevaluate the foundation of the teaching that you are either giving or receiving. That the littlest bit of incorrect understanding or tradition that creeps into a teaching, it can contaminate the entire loaf. And if you don't do a reset regularly, you're going to start building up doctrines and ideas that don't necessarily fit, and they're going to get corrupted and passed on to later generations. So how does this connect to the command to consecrate the firstborn? Clean your leaven out of your house 
and consecrate and redeem the firstborn. Still not connecting, is it? Well, just as we had a look at the practical application of going through a week of unleavened bread to get to the point of recognizing the deeper symbol of matzah, so too we need to understand the role of the firstborn in the ancient Near East to discover what it is that this command has to say to Israel and to those who have been so recently redeemed. Why is it so vitally important that these commands be given now, before they've even escaped from Egypt? So once again, we're all familiar with the usual understanding of the firstborn in Scripture. First off, the firstborn received the blessing to rule in the place of the father once the father passed away. Authority would be passed on to them and the charge to take over the family business and to rule the family in the stead of the father. Secondly, the firstborn was to receive a double portion of the inheritance that was left to the children by the father. As the leader of the family, the firstborn would require greater resources and so would receive greater reward, to whom much is given, as it's written. Now, those roles are explicitly stated in the text of Scripture. Now, there is a third role that the firstborn would take on in the ancient Near East that's never stated explicitly in Scripture, but that is in the text and is simply assumed that a person would understand, as this role is something that would be conferred through the blessing of the Father. In the ancient Near East, the firstborn of every family filled the role of priest for that household. It was the job of the firstborn to offer sacrifices, to teach about and make requests of the household gods, to tell the stories of the past, to raise up his own firstborn to take his place and to fulfill these roles for the household. If we pay close attention, we'll actually see this type of thing happening in the stories of Genesis. Abraham passes the role of priest to Isaac, and we find Isaac receiving this role for himself and then acting in this role. In Genesis 26, 24 through 25, and Hashem appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you, and shall bless you and increase your seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he built an altar there and called on the name of Hashem and pitched his tent there, and the servants of Isaac dug a well there. Jacob, in the same way, inherits the role of priest, and we'll see him operating in this role in Genesis. So in Genesis 27, Jacob steals the blessing from Esau. In Genesis 28, Jacob is given an expanded blessing from his father. And then he travels to Padan Aram for 20 years. After those 20 years, he returns to Canaan. And the entire time, we never see Jacob act in the role of a priest. It's not until Jacob has returned to the land, been confronted by both Laban and Esau, wrestled an angel, had his name changed, lived in Shechem, and had his sons destroy the entire city, that we finally see Jacob take up the role of priest. Genesis 35, 1-4 And God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and cleanse yourself, and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and let me make there an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way in which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was near Shechem. Now, if these don't sit it for you, consider this truth that we will read later in Numbers 3, verses 12 through 13, where it says, Now look, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children of Israel, 
and the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn of Israel, both man and beast. They are mine. I am Hashem. In Numbers 3, we're actually going to read of an exchange occurring between the firstborn and the Levites, where the Levites are then superseded, the firstborn, as the ones who function in the temple, in the tabernacle, and the ones who take on the role of priests. Because up to that point, the firstborn were the priests. It's not stated explicitly that this is the case, but there are enough hints throughout Scripture to discover that this is, in fact, the truth. And if we need to, we can turn to archaeology, and we can turn to history. But I hope that the Scriptures are enough to make this point. And if they're not, go look it up for yourself. It's actually really fascinating. So this role of the firstborn priest is not something that was foreign to Israel and Egypt. It's something that they would have been familiar with. And so when it was not explicitly stated, it was contextually understood. It's our modern Western context that completely misses this implicit idea that is present in the text and in both archaeological and historical studies. The way it worked in the ancient Near East is that each household would have a god or two or more that the household honored and worshipped. The firstborn would be taught the rites, the prayers, the practices, the history, the character, the reputation of that household god. The major national gods were not to be worshipped by commoners. There were lower gods to be worshipped in the household of those with lower stations. The god of a slave would be a very low-level god with very little power or honor, but they would still be some god for them to worship, even at the lowest levels. Well, Israel, in the Egyptian context, we know because of later actions, they did worship foreign gods while in Egypt. Now, does that mean that they did not worship Hashem? No, it simply means that Hashem was part of a pantheon that Israel would have worshipped. He would have been one god among many. To the Egyptians, Hashem was a foreign god who had no power in their land. Pharaoh himself declared, I do not know Hashem, when Moses makes his initial request. Add to this that each household would choose for themselves which gods they would worship. Do you worship the god of agriculture, fertility, war, peace, protection, architecture, water, land, or one of a thousand others. Your household wouldn't elevate all gods, and so a single firstborn priest would be unable to accomplish all that would be needed to worship all the gods present in a pantheistic society. Your family would choose one or two, and those would become the gods of the household. For most, the worship practices were inherited from their parents and then passed on to their children. As Proverbs says in Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not turn from it. Well, in the pantheistic societies, they trained up their children in the way that they should go and how to worship the various gods that they had chosen for themselves. So when Hashem destroyed all the firstborn of Egypt, it truly is a judgment on the gods of Egypt, because they have no more priests in the land of Egypt. Not only were each of the gods soundly demonstrated to be completely powerless in the face of Hashem, but their religious structure of Egypt would have been completely decimated. Not just decimated, because decimated means 10% destroyed. It was completely destroyed. The infrastructure of worship was gone, and gone for at least a generation. Now, on the flip side, 
the firstborn of Israel and those who had joined themselves to Israel would have been spared, which means that the worship practices of Egypt would have been preserved, but not in Egypt. Rather, they were preserved in Israel. And they were taken from Egypt and then turned to worship the one true God, sanctified to Hashem rather than to these other gods that they would have been worshiping. But these worship practices are something that Hashem no longer wishes for Israel to participate. And so, something has to be done, thus the command for sanctification. They're all to be dedicated to Him. No more household gods, no more choosing other gods whom you will serve. Each household of Israel has been chosen by God to serve Him and Him alone. There's no requirement of status. The rich and the poor are welcome. The honorable and the shameful are welcome. From the king to the slave, everyone worships the same God from the highest to the lowest. No choosing which God best fits your lifestyle. Now, it's incumbent upon the people to change their lifestyle to fit their God. And their God is so big that he encompasses all of those areas of worship that any of the other gods could have covered. He is the God of agriculture, fertility, war, peace, protection, architecture, water, land, and sky. Now, there is only one God, and his dominion covers everything that might concern both you as an individual and you as a community. And in this one simple command that we rarely truly stop and fully consider, the gods of Egypt are replaced with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A single worship practice is instituted and Hashem is established as the God of Israel, and every household is brought under His authority. And this is the foundation of worship that we'll find later in the book. Not just every household, but every single living thing of Israel is dedicated to the worship of Hashem. The first of the flocks, the first of the other domesticated animals, every single firstborn belongs to Hashem. He is the source of Israel's strength. For now, the priesthood of Israel is being claimed from the gods of the nations and brought into service to Hashem. And it's only later that this priesthood will then be transferred to the Levites. So what is it that these two commands have in common? What is it that unifies them in both thought and action? Have you figured it out? They both demonstrate a clean start a disconnect from all that had come before. They prescribed the beginning of a purge of the ways of Egypt and the nations in the lives of Israel, and the lives of all that have joined themselves to Hashem and have come under the blood of the Lamb. Out with the old, it's time to start anew. You see, when we come to faith in Yeshua, when we come under the grace and mercy of Hashem, we are shown a great truth. Everything that came before must be discarded, and we must start from scratch. All that we think we know, we got to get rid of it. Worship practices of the culture and of the world around us are to be rejected. The culture of the people that you live among must be cast off. And it's here that God will create in His people a baseline for the foundation that He will build from. A foundation that's solid and is not connected to that which can be shaken and is unreliable and false. So why is it that just after they leave Egypt we suddenly read these commands regarding matzah once again and the firstborn redemption? They provide for everyone that very first foundation all else must be built upon. 
Redemption means that you leave behind what has come before and you attach yourself wholly and only to Hashem. Without this, without a clean break, without burning your ships, so to speak, you will not go the distance that God has for you and what progress you make will be just off center in some way. So this sounds good, right? But the question then comes, is this a legitimate understanding of these commands? Because if it is, we will find this pattern repeated elsewhere in Scripture. And so we do. This pattern is something that's not limited to this chapter in Exodus 13, because we find this pattern in other places that speak on each of these same ideas. So let's turn to Isaiah 30, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this crookedness is to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly, swiftly, and he shall break it like the breaking of a potter's vessel, Exodus 1, which is broken in pieces without sparing, so that there is not found among its fragments a shard to make fire from the hearth, or to take water from the cistern. It's descriptive of Egypt. For thus says the Master Hashem, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you are saved. In stillness and trust is your strength. That's being Israel in Egypt, being unable to fight back and being fully reliant upon God. But you would not, and you said, No, for we flee upon horses, therefore you flee. And we ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you are swift. One thousand flee at the rebuke of one. At the rebuke of five you shall flee until you are left as a pole on top of a mountain and as a sign on a hill. And therefore Hashem shall wait to show you favor. And therefore he shall be exalted to have compassion on you. For Hashem is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more, and he shall show much favor to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears, he shall answer you, which is Exodus 2 and 3. Though Hashem gave you bread of adversity, matzah, and water of affliction, Exodus 14 through 18 and the water trials, your teacher shall no longer be hidden, but your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or whenever you turn to the left describing the pillar of cloud and fire and the instruction given at Mount Sinai. And you shall defile the covering of your graven images of silver and the plating of your molded images of gold. You shall throw them away as a menstrual cloth and say to them, Be gone! It's the casting out of the old leaven and the taking of the firstborn of the priests. And he shall give you rain for your seed with which you shall sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth and it shall be fat and rich, your cattle grazing in a large pasture on that day, the land flowing with milk and honey. The pattern of the Exodus is one that occurs repeatedly. It is the pattern that Yeshua gives to the disciples when he calls them, when he says, leave your home, your job, your religion, your family, and follow me. It's the pattern that he gives to the rich young ruler when he says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. It's the pattern that he leaves with each and every one of the sinners that he encounters and heals when he says, go and sin no more. This is the first step after redemption. Disconnect, leave idolatry behind, and start fresh.
This is the Acts 15 command. And in so doing, a firm foundation on which the kingdom of God can be built will begin to form in your life. And as we begin anew in the secure freedom of redemption, this is what we all must do. We must disconnect from what has come before in our lives. We must discard the ways of the world and enter into true relationship with Hashem. And when we take this step, only then do we begin the path of Dereshchai, the path of seeking life and seeking the God of life in all that we do. And that's a good first step. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.